0: Just a couple of uh, clarifications. One, it's really nerve-wracking to wear one of these and, have, and be singing. You have to make sure that it's turned off. Um, and second, I know Sandy can stand up here and teach without notes and do it off the top of his head. I can't, and I had to move this up here because I've reached the age where I have to do this. So I'm getting used to my new eyes. Okay, it's been a really interesting thing. Um, over the last couple of months. As you look at the text that we're going to be on this morning, it's all about loving your enemy. And to be thinking about this a lot and be immersed in it as we enter into an election season has been really an interesting experience. And to watch as uh, through debates and through commercials and uh, to be thinking in terms of loving your enemy and then watching the way uh, Democrats and Republicans have been responding to each other. And then if you teach much, you know that one of the scariest things about teaching is that God tends to test you in the area that you're teaching. And so, you know, I've always said I won't teach on marriage and I won't teach on finances because I'm not ready for that. Um, but as I've been teaching on Love in Your Enemy, I began to wonder what God would do in terms of testing me in in this area. And then he had my child choose to go to UT. And I uh, I grew up a Memphis fan, and uh, so it's been a big adjustment for us, but we've just been really thankful we didn't pick Ole Miss. So um, I just wanted to test you to see if you could love your enemy. So there's a group of you now that are going to be really challenged. Um, let's go ahead and read Matthew five thirty-eight through 48. You have heard that it was said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You must be perfect, excuse me, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now if you look, I've got um, three different quotes here as we introduce this section and the first one you've probably heard from G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. I don't know what specific part of the Christian faith he was referring to when he said that, but I can tell you that it was probably when he was reading Sermon on the Mount, because as we looked last week when Sandy was talking about uh, adultery and that just even lusting in our heart being sin, and as you think about having to love your enemy and turn the other cheek, it's really difficult as we read this. And we have a tendency to maybe want to try and soften the blow, to maybe find some nuance here, to, to find some way to maybe soften it a little bit. Martin Luther King said, far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for enemies. And so what he's saying is, is that as we read this, we, we want to think that maybe this is some sort of challenge that Jesus was giving just to the few, the, the superheroes, you know, the, the, the giants of the faith. And what he's saying is, is that far from that, it's a challenge for every single one of us. It's what we're all called. And if you remember the circumstances that he said that in, you begin to really appreciate the weight of what he's saying. Because he was, in fact, in a very real situation of facing very real enemies who would persecute him and challenging the people who had, were following him to do the same with a very real threat. This was not some sort of ivory tower proclamation. This was a, a very tangible challenge uh, to a large group of people who were being oppressed and saying, look, you, this is what we're called to do, to love our enemy. And then the last one, I actually know who said this, but I listed it anonymous just to keep him out of trouble. Um, it's worse than you think. Um, I, my youngest daughter is seven now and she's adopted from China. And so, you know, we wonder sometimes what she's going to think about that in the long run. And we were talking to a friend of ours who has two uh, daughters who are adopted. They're older, and they're in junior high school now. And so we were asking him, you know, what kind of reaction do you get from them? Do they question? Do they struggle with it? And he said, well, you know, they they don't all the time, but they did once. And they came to me and said, uh, you know, Dad, we we just feel weird sometimes. You know, we're we're Chinese, and... And, you know, like, not a lot of people around us are Chinese, and, and we just feel weird. And he said, oh, it's worse than that. You know, I'm thinking he's going to have this great answer, and I'm like, oh, good. All right, I want to hear this. What do I tell my daughter? And he's like, oh, I told him, no, 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 you're a lot weirder than you think you are. See, <laughs> you're not just Chinese and, and growing up in a white family. You're, you're growing up in a white family in the South, in the United States, in, in a you know, middle-class family, that happens to be evangelical Christians, he said, so not only are you strange racially you 're strange like you 're way weirder than you think you are because the weirdest thing you can be in this culture is an evangelical Christian who really believes the Bible and so I, as i 've thought through that, um, you know I, I told our Sunday school class that, and i 've told my family I was like all right here 's the deal i 'm raising you to be really weird and as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, you know, our tendency is to want to kind of soften the blow and let's find some nuance, and maybe, maybe he means this, and well, surely you know, it's, he's just raising the standard to show us how far, fall, you know, how far short we're going to fall. And uh, I think what Jesus maybe is telling us is that you're weirder than you think you are. See, I'm, 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 I'm giving you an example of how you're going to live that's going to make you look completely different from the rest of the culture. And if you think about it, Jesus didn't come and die. He wasn't crucified because he came and said, love your enemies, and did it in a way that made everybody just a little better and a little nicer. I mean, if you were really loving your enemies in a way that was just nice and friendly, why would they crucify you? It's because he didn't come to just make us better, nicer people. He came to make us a new creation. And so in that, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we can't soften the blow. It's actually worse than we think it is. He's really challenging us not to just not touch, but to, he's challenging the way we look. He's challenging us not just to sort of have this constraint where we don't hurt each other so that we can have a nice, orderly, civil society. He's challenging us to go further and to actually love the person, love our neighbor, love our enemy. That gets you crucified because what that is, that is transformative, that's different. It's challenging. So Jesus is bringing us a love that is not just nice and friendly and sweet. He's bringing us a love that's threatening, that's challenging, that that upsets the status quo. This love is going to take us not just to being good people, but to being totally different people that looks different than the world. And when we do that, it's going to challenge the standard of living. It's going to challenge the way that we live and the way that our neighbors live in a way that's going to its gonna demand so much more of us than we really honestly want to give. That's the kind of love that gets you crucified. And as we look at it this morning, let's ask that question, what does it really mean, who are our enemies, and what does it really mean to love them? And begin to ask the question, not just in a sort of a how do I satisfy God, how do I, you know, where's the line, where's it drawn, how do I... We want to ask the question, what does it mean to fully embrace this and to really become the men that God has, has telling us that we're to be? Uh, I'll start us off in prayer and we'll dive into the text. Lord, we're thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the challenge. We just pray that as we look at it, that you will speak, that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts that understand, and that you'll overcome the deficiencies of the messenger In such a way that you speak through this text. We just um, pray that all that we say and do this morning would be to your glory. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So first, 38 through 42, we're going to see that Jesus is telling us to love our enemy means not retaliating. So at verse 38, he said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. See, the cultural expectation was revenge. Now... This is a, Jesus is speaking this into a shame and honor culture. In many ways, it still is. You don't have to look very far on the news to find uh, reports of honor killings, and um, you know, in Muslim countries, there's still you know daughters getting killed to defend the honor of the family, and uh, you know, revenge and, and feuds and things going back and forth, tribal warfare. And so it's easy for us to hear that and think, you know, that's the way they operate. And yet what we can do is is look a little closer to home and see that while the appearance may be different then in a lot of the same ways, we still operate out of that sort of shame-honor culture. We talk about saving face, losing face. Maybe in a business situation, you're looking, you know, we'll we'll talk about giving someone an opportunity uh, to give them a way out so that they can sort of step away from a confrontation without losing face. Um, We talk about not running up the score. You know, because we don't want to embarrass someone. I mean, we're coming at it from a different angle, but there's still that thought of... And, and now, you know, the, I think the kid... You know, I'm going to just look so old and, and everything when I say it. But I think the word is swag, right? You know, how much swag do you have? It's, it's all about how you uh, present yourself. And, you know, there's a certain amount of... Um, I don't know how to say it. I mean, yeah, I'm just... I'm too old to get it now. But my kids tell me, you know, it's about swagger. So... There still is this sort of shame honor culture, and so Jesus is speaking into it. And as we look at what is he saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was called lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And what it was set up for was, was in a culture like that, when you're trying to defend your honor, if someone's wronged you, then of course the natural response is is to wrong them back, to get your revenge, to go back and, you know, if they knock out your eye, you're going to take out theirs. And more often than not, you know the ante was upped a little bit, and you know you 'd go back and take two eyes for an eye and so the law of retaliation was set up this what Jesus is quoting was actually a good thing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth because what it did was it was set up to limit revenge, and so that it was a basis for justice so within the ju- within the legal system. They would, you know, there was now some sort of apparatus to keep this escalation from, you know, if if everyone was going around doing an eye for an eye, and tooth for tooth, and and, and upping it, you, you've got a civilization that's out of control. So they have this apparatus set up to ensure that there's going to be some sense of justice and limitation on what people could do when they've been wronged. Well, as was their tendency, the problem was, is this had over the years had been interpreted and. and And been changed a little bit so that this foundation for justice had been twisted in sort of a personal right. If you do this to me, I can do this to you. So what had meant to be what was meant to be a limitation had become a license. And if you think about it, yeah, if you've raised children, you know that this works this way. If you say, don't go like you can play in the yard, but don't go past that tree. You know, don't run past the tree. All right, we well, said don't run. What if I walk past the tree? What if I sort of tiptoe right up to the tree? What if I stand right here, right next to the tree? Is that okay? Can I do that? And we come to God doing that. So we, it, it's just the human nature to begin to say, all right, so, so if you said we can take an eye for an eye, so what does that mean? And we're trying to push the envelope further and further. And so that's what they had done is they had twisted something that was meant to be a limitation and had become a license. And so I've got this great quote from The Untouchables, and I'm sure you've seen it. So as I, as I read it, sort of get your Sean Connery voice in your head. I'm not going to try and imitate Sean Connery. He says, you want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way, and that's how you get Capone. All right, so you remember the scene. They're trying to figure out what to do, and he's just saying, you gotta, if he gets one of yours, you get two of his. That's human nature. That's who we are. And if you don't think it is, think about how often. How often have you been in a situation where you've just got to get the last word in? How often are you in a situation where you just kind of you just really want to rub somebody's nose in it? You know, I, I'll, I'll confess. There's been a couple of times at a, at a game where my team, oddly enough, is, is I, as a Memphis fan, you know this is strange. my team's winning, and and I just want them to like hit the three at the buzzer just to rub it in their nose. But that's a silly example. The real example is, and more close to home, you ever get in a fight with your wife or someone really close to you and you get your feelings hurt? And so what do you do? Instead of making the situation better, you reach in the bag and you're like, what's the most hurtful thing I can pull out of here? It's just human nature. It's who we are. But Jesus is saying there is much more to it than that. Not I'm calling you not to retaliate. I'm calling you to do something completely different. He says, "But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil." Now, as we read through this, there are going to be a million questions that are going to pop in your head, and there is no way in the world we can answer all of them this morning. Um, and one of the questions you read here, and this, and, and we could spend the rest of the morning talking about different men in history who have interpreted this in different ways and what it meant for them and for their culture. But I say to you, do not resist the one that is evil. And your first response probably, and mine definitely, was, I'm supposed to be a doormat? I mean, what if somebody's beating up my wife? What if they're stealing my car? What if?" And you begin to run through all the things that are evil, and you're like, don't resist. What in the world? And what about... The fact that Martin Luther King read this very text, and what was he doing? He was trying to resist an evil structure, and he used this text as the basis for opposing the structure that was there. So he was resisting evil, and we, and we all know that that was, that was the right thing. So what is he saying? Well, the word for evil here is in a masculine uh, tense, not, not tense. It's masculine, not neutered. And what that means is, is that it's a personal, not an abstract term. So he's saying don't resist the evil one, don't resist the person. He's not saying the whole idea of evil. He's saying don't, you know, don't resist, you know, go do, you know, let everybody do whatever they want to do. That's not what he's saying. So he's not saying we are to resist evil in sort of a cosmic structural sense. And we're to resist being evil and we're not supposed to just pretend that evil didn't happen. But we're not going to fight evil by returning it with evil. That's the key to understanding this text. That what he's saying is, he's talking in terms of eye for an eye, he's talking in terms of retaliation. So, what he's saying is, don't resist the evil one with the very thing he's bringing to you. Don't fight fire with fire. So, first he says, don't retaliate when insulted. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So as you read through the commentaries, what they'll tell you is, how do you strike someone on the right cheek? Well, with it culturally speaking, the left hand was used for other things. It wasn't going to be used for this. So the only way you can strike someone on the right side of the cheek with the right hand is to backhand So a strike that would be normally reserved for someone that that person felt was beneath them, a slave, a woman, that was how they would hit those people. So for a man to hit another man across the cheek was sort of the ultimate insult. It was treating the man the way that he would treat a child or treat a slave. And so Jesus is saying when they hit you that way, when when you've been insulted or humiliated, don't respond by striking them back. Give them the other cheek. And it's really interesting as I read through this, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but one of the people I read said, in a way what this was, was saying that no matter how much someone tries to take your dignity from you, you're not going to let them take it because you know who you are. You know that you're in the image of God. You know, you know you, what you're going to do is when they strike you on the one cheek, you're going to turn the other and say, strike me there and strike me like a man, that you're going to refuse to be treated like a victim. You're going to be refused to be treated like someone beneath him. It's an interesting read on it, and I think there's some truth there, because as we're thinking about it, what he's saying is, is don't become a victim. You're not going to let them have power over you. They're going to try and insult you, and the way that they have power over the, you is if you respond in kind. But he's saying you're, you're going to be stronger than that. You're going to turn the other cheek because you know who you belong to. So second, do not retaliate when treated unjustly. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, I, I have absolutely no intention of making any sort of claim here. If you've been sued, and I'm sure in a room like this, God knows how many of us <laughs> have been, um, I, I don't know what this means in terms of of lawsuits and lawyers, and I'm not commenting there what this meant culturally speaking, was when you gave someone your tunic, if they took your cloak, your tunic was what you might wear during the day. Your cloak is what protected you at night. So if it was cold, and you, your cloak was what you had that protected you from being sick, it protected you from the elements. And so for someone to take your cloak, what you had to do was go back at the end of every day. They weren't allowed to keep it overnight. So you had to go back every day and get that cloak and have it for the night and then bring it back. So what it was was to have your tunic taken from you, that's humiliating. And there's an implication that maybe it was done wrongly. So you have something taken from you by legal manipulation, by whatever's going on. To give them your cloak meant that while the humiliation of the tunic was one thing, you had to go back day after day after day to face that person and receive that cloak. And so it was a daily humiliation that you were having to put up with. And so Jesus is saying, if it's taken from you, if they take your tunic, give them your cloak. And we'll go further into that in just a second. And then last, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So we're not going to retaliate when we're oppressed. To go the extra mile when the soldiers would be, you know, in, in the, with culturally speaking, that the soldiers had the right to take anyone they wanted and make them carry all of their equipment, all of their armor, whatever they had, their pack, and make them carry it a mile. And so they could come in and sort of conscript you. And you can imagine, if you're in an occupied country, how demeaning that would be. It's bad enough to have them in your country. It's bad enough to have them tell you what to do. But then they're going to come up and make you carry the very things that are oppressing you. And Jesus is saying, when they ask you to carry it one mile, you're going to carry it two. Now, the last one is the one that I had the hardest time because he's given us four examples. And these three are pretty clear, pretty, pretty easy to understand how you're being taken advantage of, how you're, beneath, you know, how you're being oppressed what the evil is there. But the last one says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, I think it's interesting culturally that um, we use the terms, go the extra mile and turn the other cheek. You'll hear those almost daily. You will almost never hear give to the one that begs from you daily. And I've really struggled to figure out, you know one, what's evil about someone asking you for something? And then... Why is this mentioned with the other three? And as I began to think about it in terms of the key here is is what Jesus is saying is when someone's trying to humiliate you, here's the way that you're going to rise above it. But now he's telling us when you have the power to humiliate, not only are you not going to respond and humiliate back, but when you just have the power to humiliate, and maybe it's someone who's wronged you in the past, and you've been saying, just wait till they need me. Just wait and you kind of store it in the back of your mind, and like, I'll get my chance. I'll get a shot at them. And the minute it comes, and you have the power to humiliate them, Jesus is saying, you're not even going to do that. If it's within your power to keep someone from being humiliated in their poverty or in their need, you're to do it. That's a tough word. What, it, what this does is now, it's one thing when, someone, when you have no choice You've got no choice. They've struck you. They've taken something from you. They're making you carry their stuff. You've got no choice but to, to go the extra mile, or, you know, to respond in some way. But this one is where you have the choice. Someone's come to you, and if it's within your power, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to give to them. And so if we think through what's going on here and what all these things have in common, and why would Jesus ask us to do this? Responding like this—if you think about when you've seen this go on—it magnifies the evil. It shines a light on it. It's one thing if someone's being—you know—strikes me and I strike them back. That—that's just you know fighting in the locker room, fighting where I mean, you know, that's, men do that all the time. But when you get struck and you step back and you say, "Do it again," I'm not responding. You bring a light on it that doesn't come on it when you respond in kind. And now the question is who is he? What is he doing? Why is he not responding? The person that struck you now is put in a position of having to defend the reason that, they, you know, people are looking and like, wait a minute, why did you do that? It shines light on it, it magnifies it, and it brings shame, but not humiliation. So if I return, if, if someone comes up here and hits me and I hit him back, That's life. Someone comes up here and hits me and I respond lovingly and I respond with restraint and self-control. Now the question's back on them. Who are you? Why did you strike him? What were you doing? And so it brings, instead of me humiliating them in return, now I've brought shame, but shame's healthy. Now they have to question their motive. They have to question why they did it. What is it that's in me that's not responding like them? And so what we see is that this, this behavior becomes redemptive because in responding in kind, there's no hope for breaking this cycle, but in responding with restraint, in responding with love, now the whole situation's been laid open, and now there's a hope that maybe there can be change, maybe there can be re- reconciliation. Um, in South Africa, when... Uh, Apartheid fell. they began to ask the question, how do we move forward? There's been so much that's gone on wrong. How are people going to live side by side when all these terrible things have happened? How do we move forward? And they said, well, we've got three choices. We've got one is the choice is revenge. We can take everybody who's done something wrong and we go and we take an eye for an eye. We take revenge. Or second, we can just have national amnesia. We can just start over, hit the reset button. None of this ever happened. We just start off from scratch. Or they said... But you know, neither of those ways is going to work because we're either going to escalate the violence and entrench all of the problems that we've had for all these years, or if we just forget, we're going to deny the things that have happened to the victims and what's happened to the perpetrators, we're going to deny it, and there's no healing there either. To deny it is just to push it under where it's going to pop up worse and bigger later. So he said, the only way forward is a third way, the way of forgiveness, and so if you think about what's going on here, we have some options when we're wronged. We can retaliate. We can try and pretend that it didn't happen. We can call it something else. We do that culturally all the time. We, we love to take something that's evil and try and pretend that it's not evil or maybe give it an excuse or, or, or talk about, well, you know, I kind of understand because they were come from this situation and this happened. And, and so we want to find ways to just soften it and kind of push it down because we don't really want to deal with it. Or we can confront it. That's what we're doing here. We confront it. We say, look, you've struck me. I, it's wrong. But I'm not responding in kind. You want me to go the extra mile, I'm going the You want me to walk a mile, I'm going too. Because I'm going to shine light on what's going on here so that we can confront the situation and move forward and actually have some hope of redemption and reconciliation in it. So how are we going to do this? One is we have to know ourselves transparently. Look in. See your own sinful nature and remember that you were forgiven while you were yet a sinner. Whatever it is you have in understanding this situation and responding differently, you didn't have on your own. It was given to you by God when you were his enemy. And it's really easy for us to look at our sin and to see the nuance and to see the circumstances and begin to talk about why it's not as bad as it really looks and to look at someone else's and make it two-dimensional, cardboard, cutout character. Yeah, you know, I joke sometimes when I want to talk about this. It's like a Seinfeld episode, you know? Seinfeld would have, like, the soup Nazi, and that's all that guy was. Just angry soup server, no life outside. You know, when we lived in my uh, old neighborhood, we had, across the street, the upwardly mobile lawyer. We had the redneck old couple, and we had the whatever. And we were just ready to just pigeonhole everybody in their little thing. And then you get to know people and you find out they're far more than that. I hope I'm not talking to anybody that lived on my street before. (laughs) So we have to know who we are. And then we have to look out and see see our enemy honestly. See, what we have to do is look at him and see the sin. We're not pushing it away. We're not pretending it didn't happen. We're going to confront it. So we see that there's something real going on here. There is sin. But while we're doing that, we have to look past the sin and see that this person was created in the image of God. We don't excuse or camouflage anything, but we call sin, sin by our actions. And we, in our actions, being Christ-like, turning the other cheek, not retaliating, means that we have created a situation where that sin can be dealt with. It can be called what it is. It can be dealt with one way or the other. And we're taking a risk of further suffering. But that's what Jesus did for us. And so if we know who we are and we know who they are and we call their sin what it is, the only way that we can follow through is that we trust our Father completely. We're looking, God, we, we are looking to God for justice. We're trusting that a Father who would offer His Son for us while we were yet sinners is in fact going to be present and give us justice in the end so that we don't have to seek it ourselves. That we can follow the example of his son laying ourselves down so that there is that hope for reconciliation. There is that hope that this person too will come to know the thing that we've been given. And the more we understand what we've been given, the more we understand ourselves honestly, the more we're going to appreciate what it is, the more we're going to see the power of it. See, the trick is is that we want to think, well, of course Jesus saved me. I'm not such a bad guy. I mean, who wouldn't want to save me, really? And we look at the other guy and go, but I have no idea what he's going to do with him. (laughs) But when we understand the the real depth of our sin, we begin to appreciate the true power that we hold. The true, not that we hold, that we've been given, that's that's in us. When the Spirit is in us, we've got something that's, that's unimaginable. But until we've understood that, we'll never be able to trust the, the God for justice. will never be able to, to do these things until we've begun to understand what it is we've been given. And when we do, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when we do this, evil has met an opponent that is more than its match. And so the, the example we've been given in Jesus is this in First Peter 2, 21 through 23. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, that's what he's doing. He's saying, look, I'm going to go further. I'm going to suffer further just as I did for you. You're going to do this. You're not going to retaliate, and you're going to entrust yourself to a good judge. Romans twelve seventeen through 21. Repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, be, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think as we think through that, we begin to understand the richness of it, that we overcome evil with good. If we try to overcome evil by fighting fire with fire, all we do is escalate. But when we are willing to suffer and suffer in the way that's been done for us, when we're willing to bring Christ's suffering and know his suffering, when we can do that, we've now become... We, we've now given the opportunity for evil to be overcome with good. So we're either heaping coals on their head or we're overcoming evil with good. But we are we are being... You know, and you, Our first instinct is read this and think this means I have to be a doormat. Don't resist evil. But see, this is the strongest kind of man. This is the man that knows who he is, that doesn't have to prove anything. I chickened out this week. We went to Gatlinburg with the kids. And so my son had climbed uh, chimney tops. And apparently it's a fairly difficult climb. It was difficult for me just because it was uphill. But... um, I actually did make it to, like, the top where it's supposed to get challenging, and I was like, wow, if it's more than this, um, so, and my seven-year-old, like, sprinted straight up the mountain and waited on me for 30 minutes, it was really humiliating, uh, but I loved her anyway, and, um, so we get to the top, and we're looking up, and it's just this really steep, slippery little climb to the view, and, uh, my son's ready to climb on up, and my kids are ready to go, and I looked at him, I was like, I can't do it, and, uh, and they were really disappointed. And I said, "And so Zach says Zach you 'You've got to do it, Dad. Come on, you got to do.'" It. I was like, "You know what? It's okay. I know who I am, and I, I'm comfortable in my own skin. And I, at, at my age, like the times now that I that I want to like try and prove something are always the times I wind up in the emergency room." So, um, <laughs> so I just told you know, I, and it, silly, but that's what's going on here. The, The only man that can do this is a man who knows who he is. And not like a man who knows he is like he's all strong and confident. It's a man who knows who he's following. It's a man who says, look, I I know my sin. I know what I've been forgiven. And I know who I am in Christ. And I don't have to prove anything to the world around me in order to feel like the man I'm supposed to be. I can turn the other cheek. I can walk the extra mile. I can give up my own things for someone else. Because I don't have to humiliate and count. I don't have to swagger. I just have to follow Christ. And the more I know that suffering, the more I know who he is, the more I'm able to do this. This is not a weak man. This is the strongest kind of man. But our strength comes in our weakness, right? So it gets... So first, we love our enemies by not retaliating. Second, we love our enemy. By praying and seeking his good. Verse 43 You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So the cultural expectation was tribalism. Now you may not think that you're tribal, but if you start thinking about how do we divide ourselves up into tribes? Well, let's see, we do it on nationality proud to be an American, we do it on race. We do it on political affiliation. Has that hit you at all this this season? I was telling somebody beforehand, you know, it's really interesting, and, and, I, and I see it in myself. It's been really hard this year as I look at different people saying different things, and part of it makes me angry, and part of it I don't get, and part of it feels crazy. And as you're looking at these different responses, whichever side you're coming from, Democrat or Republican, there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground these days. And so the question we have to ask is, how in all of this political discourse and how in times where there are very heated opinions on both sides can we overcome it and not be tribal and really find ways to love each other? And so the, the challenge is, is, are we really praying for the people that, you know, it's fine to oppose. It's fine to take one side or the other and believe that there's a certain system or a certain way things ought to operate. But are we doing it in a loving way that prays for the people that we oppose politically? We get divided into socioeconomic tribes. We get divided into religious tribes. We even get divided into brand tribes. You could be PC or Mac, iPhone or Galaxy or whatever. Um, and that sounds silly, but think about how much we find our identity in what we wear, what we have, and what we drive, and where we live. And, and you'll begin to see that it sounds silly, but it's really true. So we instinctively start dividing ourselves into tribes, and what Jesus is saying is, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but wait. Leviticus nineteen thirty three and 34 said, love the alien as yourself, even though God had set up a holy nation, his people, okay? There were the Jews and there was everybody else, but when that alien came within their country, they were supposed to love him like they loved themselves, there was no room for tribalism. But over the years, it had come to the point where they were saying love your neighbor and hate your enemy because God had said love your neighbor as yourself. And so what they wanted to do, of course, is how can I narrow the definition of neighbor? Not how can I broaden it, now? not how can I seek to make everyone my neighbor, but how can I narrow this definition of neighbor to the point where it really doesn't require much of me? As we all know, Jesus, in the um, with a... Uh, The parable, you know the one I'm thinking of. Um, He broadens the definition of neighbor. Thank you, the Good Samaritan. I'm so focused, I couldn't reach outside of it. Um, (laughs) The Good Samaritan. Jesus has broadened the definition of neighbor to the point where everyone's our neighbor. But that's the way that the Pharisees work. They were trying to narrow it down. What's the smallest I can make this so that I can do it? So the question is, all right, so Jesus says, Jesus' command is to love, but I say to you. So the question is, who are our enemies? Now, in some countries and in some situations, it's really easy to tell who your enemies are. They're the people that are putting you in jail and beating you and taking your things and destroying your house and uh, you know, threatening your children and your family and throwing rocks through your windows. I mean, there are times and places where it's really, really easy to figure out who your enemies are but it dawned on me that we're really blessed to live in a country where I'm not quite so sure who my enemies are. And so I thought of it in two ways. One, there's I mean, well, three ways. One, there's the obvious, what I just mentioned. Two, it's the people I call them. Can you believe them? What are they doing? Why did they say that? How can they believe that? And then there's the, fo- the people that challenge or threaten or stand in the way of my social, economic, and vocational desires. So anybody that's going to interfere with my life and how I want to live it, I tend to treat them like an enemy. It's whoever threatens my idols. So on the one hand, there's real enemies. On the other, there's sort of enemies that I create because I'm too selfish and I'm following something besides God. Now, when Jesus says, love your enemies as we think about who our enemies are. And I really do think that question, who do you call them, is a really, like the more you think about who you call them, the more that's going to sink in and and how scary that really is. All right, so Jesus says, love your enemies. Love, the love here is agape. It does not mean a feeling of the heart which we cannot help and which comes unbidden and unsought. It means a determination of mind whereby we achieve this unconquerable goodwill even to those who hurt and injure us. So Jesus' command presupposes that love is something that can be chosen and willed. It's not something that we just fall into. So he's saying you can decide to love your enemy. And I'm going to speed up just a little bit here. And then he says pray. Pray for those who persecute you. So I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What happens when we pray? It releases our heart from our base instincts. Our instinct is to be tribal, vengeful, and just to survive. There's a way that seems right to a man. But when we begin to pray and look to God, he's going to release us from that basic instinct of how can I take care of me. Two, it turns our heart toward the truth. Entering into God's presence shines light on our heart and allows us to see the truth. It does what I talked about earlier. It shows us our own sin and it shows us the image of God standing before us. It refocuses our heart on their need. The Spirit will open our heart to compassion. So we move from being selfish and trying to figure out how we take care of us to seeing the truth to now seeing the need of the person standing in front of us. To see the emptiness of their evil and the desperate state that they've come to by the choices they've made. So I no longer look on them as someone to hate. I begin to have the compassion on them because I understand they haven't been given yet the thing that I've been given. Four, it moves our heart towards God's sovereignty. Seeing the truth, God will give us a peace in his promises. And we know from Philippians 4, 6 and 7, he says if we'll take everything to him in prayer and thanksgiving, that we'll have the peace that surpasses all understanding which will guard our hearts and our minds in Jesus So there's a promise there. God says, if you will step out and believe that I am who I say I am, if you will do this thing, if you will come to me and you will pray and you will ask me to help you love, to show you love, to give you love for this person standing before you, that I will give you a peace that will guard your heart. And five, it transforms our heart from persecuted to blessed. It takes us from the basic instinct of hate to knowing something of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. As we share in his sufferings, we begin to understand what we've been given. We begin to have a deeper appreciation for the love that's been shown to us. And as we share we understand, as we share in his sufferings, we understand that one day he's promised that he will make all things new and that that suffering will be redeemed. And I don't know what that means, but I know on some level it means that he's... like. There's a reward, there's a a promise there that these sacrifices don't go to waste. This is an arbitrary, God's not making us go through something just to see if we can do it. Our suffering has a purpose. We don't know what it is yet, but one day it will be redeemed. So 45a, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So we do this, When he says sons of, like if it says in the Bible, if it says sons of peace, it means a peaceful man. A son of, the son tends to look like the father. So to look like the father, this is what we do. We pray for our enemies. To be godly men, this is is what's required of us. And so he gives us his example. He says in 45b, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God's extending his grace to everyone, common grace, our Father's loving example. And he goes on and he says, For if you love those who love you, and what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So it's no grace, it's tribalism. But we're supposed to be different. What more are you doing? Therefore you must be perfect as your Father is perfe- Heavenly Father is perfect. We're to love your enemy to be like our Father. And so this I'm gonna go a little bit out of order. The when he says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, the word perfect is teleos, which in Greek had this meaning of like fully grown and mature, that something was fully realizing the purpose for what it was made. So it's not perfect in the sense of being flawless. It's perfect in the sense of fulfilling what we were created to do, which was to be like God and to love love others the way that God loves us. So how are we going to be men who fully realize the purpose for what we've been created for which is to be like God in loving everyone, loving our neighbor as ourself, to love our enemy and to pray for him. Why would we love our enemies? First, hate breeds hate. The cycle has to be broken. If we just respond in kind, if there's just this constant, uh, you do this and I do this and we respond and you take one of mine to the hospital and I take one of yours to the morgue, then there's never any way to break that cycle. We can try and forget about it, and it's going to pop up again because that's the, way people, that's the way the human heart works. So we can try and push it off to the side. It's going to pop up again, bigger, stronger, meaner, uglier. We can try and take revenge, and then we just wind up in that endless spiral of, of downward violence. Or we can see that there's a third way. The cycle has to be broken, so we, as godly men, are the ones who are going to step in And be willing to take the brunt because to break the cycle means that someone's got to absorb the damage that's been done. And on some level, we take that suffering, but then we go before God in prayer and thanksgiving and we we give it to Him and He gives us peace. So, hate breeds hate. Two, hate distorts the hater. See, the question is, and your response is, what will you be governed by? What's going to shape your decisions? What's going to shape your actions? Are you going to respond to God, who's called you to love? Are you going to respond to your enemy, who's who's challenging you to hate? Hate corrupts the heart and corrodes our heart. It's like here's the best way I could think of this. I, I do artwork, and so I was in a class and we were painting something. And when you go to these classes, there's 13 or 14 people, and you know, like one model or still life or whatever you're working from, and unless you're in a really super-duper professional studio, it's not always extremely well lit. So everybody fights for the best spot, and then if you get there late, you're kind of stuck on the corner. So I get there late, and I'm stuck in the corner. So I have this special lamp, right, that's supposed to, you know, so I've got some light to see what I'm doing. And so I'm painting and painting, and we spend you know, several weeks on this, and I'm feeling really good about it, and I think I've got this masterpiece. And so at the end of, uh, at the end of the class... You know, we set it out where we can kind of see what everybody's done. And what looked really beautiful with this little lamp, when it was put in natural light, looked hideous and garish. The colors were all wrong. The shadows were all wrong. Everything looked twisted and distorted. And see, the point is, is that the only way that you can see things truly is to have the right light on the subject. And if we are going to be motivated by hate, we're never going to have the right light. The question is, what light's going to illuminate your heart? And so if it's hate, you're going to wind up garish. You're going to look purple where you should look red. You're going to, it's going to be a disaster. And you're not going to know it until you stand in the light. And then all of a sudden you're going to see who you really are. So the question we have to ask this morning is, what light is going to illuminate our heart and actions? What light is going to allow us to not retaliate? What light is going to allow us... To be the kind of people who are going to step into a hateful situation in love. Because if we don't, I can promise you we will we will become like the thing we hate. And last, love is transforming and redemptive. Michael Ramsden tells a story of a Christian guy in Pakistan who decides that he is going to go to a madrasa, a Muslim school, and he is going to study along Muslim students. This is a two-year process, I think two years. So he decides that he's going to go and he's going to enter into this process because at the end, the best student has an opportunity to address everyone that's there, kind of like a you know, valedictory speech. So he goes through two years, and he's the best student. He memorizes the Quran. He does all of these things. And at the end of two years, he stands up, and he tells everyone that he's a Christian. And he tells them that he did all this because he loved them, and he wanted to be able to share the gospel with them. Now, they're ready to kill him, except for the fact that they begin to understand, wait a minute, this guy knows that if he does this, and we already know him, like we've seen him for two years, we know the man that he is, and he knows that if he does this, that we're going to kill him we might want to stop and find out what in the world would he be willing to get killed for that's so important. And so he has an opportunity to tell them what it means to follow Christ. Now, it's an extreme example, but what we all see in it, because it's made so plainly clear, is is that there's a redemptive nature in this. This man suffered for two years. He did all this stuff. He, He endured all of this out of love for his fellow man so that they could hear this message that he had. So they began to want to know what in the world was going on. When you and I make the choice to love instead of hate, when we step into that, when we're willing to suffer for what it is we believe, that's the, that's the logical question, right? Who are you? Why, would you? why would you do this? Why would you feed me when I was so awful to you? Why would you give me something when I did? Why would you be praying for me? Why are you so kind? Because what you're doing is you're taking their worldview and you're turning it upside down. They thought they knew how the world worked. That's why they're doing what they're doing. And you're showing them a totally different way. Bonhoeffer said, It is the love of Jesus Christ himself who went patiently and obediently to the cross. The cross is the differential of the Christian religion. And I'll skip down to this just for time's sake and you know really as as I was teaching this I was thinking we all live in a circumstance where this text has tangibly affected every day that we live because there was a choice in the 60s to go the way of violence or go to the, or, or go the way of nonviolence and Martin Luther King chose the way of nonviolence and led the south in a way that saved us from an awful lot of of death and destruction and he paved the way for this to happen. And in the middle of, of what was going on, he said this. So this morning, as I look into your eyes and I, into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and all over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed, and then we will be in God's kingdom. We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we have the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. When you think about the circumstances he said that in, you see the challenge that he's saying this is not some pie-in-the-sky, ivory tower idea. This is very real, and we live it out day by day by day. And just to give you a current example, and I'll close with this. In Egypt, 88% Muslim, 12% Christian. Over the last couple of years with Mubarak's fall, there has been an awful lot of violence. Now, Christians there have always been... While it's civil and, and it's, you know, not the worst situation in the world, they have always been treated like second-class citizens. And with the fall of Mubarak and with the rise of some radical Islam, there's been uh, an awful lot that's gone on in the country. And one of the things that happened was less than a year ago on New Year's Eve 2011, and a church in Alexandria was was bombed and 21, 21 people were killed and over 70 wounded. And so the question they had was, how are we going to respond <clears throat> Ramez Atala, who is the uh, president of the Bible Society of Egypt, wrote a letter in response, and he said this. We, uh, in the letter he says, We have also produced a selection of Bible verses which we hope will be distributed in all churches on Christmas Eve, the cover of which I am attaching is a montage of various newspaper headings related to this incident. The title is Pray for Them. And of course, everyone assumes we are asking people to pray for the wounded and the families in mourning. Instead, the focus is a call to prayer for those who committed this atrocious crime. Please pray that the eternal perspective of God's word would have a profound and extensive impact on a people who are angry, frustrated, and fed up with turning the other cheek. To me, that is a beautiful explanation of what we are called to here It doesn't mean that we just walk in and we go, oh, great, I get to turn the other cheek today. Yes. He's saying, look, they're fed up. They're angry. They're tired of doing it. But yet, God's word is eternal. And our prayer is is it will impact us in a way that we can do the thing we don't want to do, that we can choose to love our neighbor in such a way that even though they have cost us, our children and our brothers and our sisters and our husbands and our wives, these people have died. There is still blood staining the door as we walk through into the church. And yet... We will love our neighbors because what was going to happen in six days was there was going to be the the Coptic Christmas service and there were going to be Muslims from all over the country that would come in solidarity and enter into the churches to say we're going to stand with you since people have died. And in that, they're saying we're going to love these people as they walk in. Even though Muslims have come and killed us, we're going to love them. That's our prayer. We're praying, yes, for the families who died, but we're praying for the people who killed them, that they will see, that they will come and see what it is. And what I know is, is I also saw a copy of an email he sent to a friend of mine, and this wasn't public, and he said in this email, it is a small price to pay if it brings Muslims to the love of Christ. This is a man who's just lost 21 friends, and he says it's a small price to pay if it brings them in the doors of this church while the blood is still on the doors. That is the love we're called to. That is the love that will break the cycle of hate. That's the love that, as Martin Luther King says, is the hope for our culture and our civilization. That's what we've been called to. And the only way we're going to do it is if we know the love of Christ that he gave for us when we were the dirty, rotten sinners that we are. I'll close this in prayer. Father, we're so blessed that in our sin that you loved us, that you came and you claimed us. It was nothing that we did. It wasn't anything lovable about us. It was just your nature. We pray that you will help us to see it and to know it, that we will be men made in your image that love the way that you love, that will turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, and pray for our enemies. We pray in this season of um, of the election as, as uh, tensions heighten and as... Uh, folks get angry, and we will remember what Tony Wade said, that our hope is not in a donkey or an elephant. It's in the Lamb of God. We pray that you will keep our hope and our trust and our faith in you, and that we will look to you for all things, that we won't look for a government to solve our problems or for money or anything else, that it will only be you, that we will rest in you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.